G'day friends, welcome back. Uh, quick disclaimer before I begin, I am fighting off a little bit of a cold, I guess you'd say. I'm just losing my voice a little bit today, so this podcast might be a little bit slower. I might speak a little more softly in an attempt to preserve my voice so that I can get through the entire podcast and then do the one tomorrow night. So apologies if I am not as enthusiastic as I sometimes am. Um, but yeah, it's it's so that I can get through this podcast and then the next without totally losing my voice. Okay. The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, part two of this fantastic trilogy. In my opinion, it is the weakest of the three. Weak is a strong word because it's still absolutely brilliant. Still, like I said for Fellowship and as I will say for Return of the King, one of the greatest films ever made. It immediately continues the run in this trilogy of 10 out of 10 cold opens. Two Towers opening with the expansion on what happens to Gandalf after he falls down that hole in Moria fighting the Balrog. Fucking dope opening. Amazing opening. Very, very cool. And, you know, for those who don't know the story and, and, and just assume that we weren't seeing Gandalf again, like, what a great surprise it would be. Um, Next of all, it's the funniest. It is by a good way the funniest of the three films. It's got loads of laugh out loud moments and loads of memeable moments, uh, which I will get to, don't you worry. And obviously it has the battle that all other film battles are compared to in the Battle of the Hornburg, or as it's more commonly known, the Battle of Helm's Deep. So, when I say it's the weakest of the three films, that is not an insult to, you know, to be any of these three films is to be some of the most brilliantly realised pieces of cinema in history. So, this is another one that I am super keen to talk about. So, let's get into it. first. I think the thing that is most obvious to touch on first <clears throat> is the the thing that was make or break for this film. The thing that if they got wrong, suddenly this film topples the entire trilogy. That is 
serious, right? And that thing is Gollum. Gollum was executed perfectly. Every single aspect could not have been better acted, could not have been better created, right? Perfectly rendered, whatever the word is, CG character. Fully realistic, stands up to this day, right? Andy Serkis is a motion capture pioneer. He's the king of it now, right? He's done lots of King Kong, Planet of the Apes, all of it, right? He's the king of motion capture. This is the beginning. Motion capture existed long before Gollum, but this is still the pinnacle, right? And though it had existed before this, this was groundbreaking because it looked perfect. And 20 years later, it still looks perfect, right? And why it was so good for the film is because Gollum is such an important character. In terms of the storyline involving Frodo and Sam and the ring, Gollum is the most important character. The most important, right? Because he is the physical representation, the embodiment of the divide that the ring is causing between Frodo and Sam. He is deliberately trying to force them apart so he can get the ring back. He is the reminder of what the ring can do to you. He's the reason that Sam, you know, is so determined. And, like, he, he hates Gollum because of what he represents. Like he can see Frodo getting weaker, getting more on edge. He can see him heading in that direction. That's why he hates Gollum more and more. Not just because he's a slimy little evil creature, but he's afraid of what Gollum means. And... At the same time, Frodo remembers what Gandalf said to him about being merciful to Gollum in Moria. And he has a lot of pity for him, which I think is interesting. You know, despite him knowing full well that were he to hold on to the ring for an extended period of time, that would be his fate as well. Um, Circus's performance is probably the best in the trilogy bar Ian McKellen's. And Bernard Hill is also very, very good. Ooh, excuse me. Is also very, very good as Theoden. But the, the real shame thus far of Circus's career is that I think purely because it's motion capture, he, he hasn't gotten the attention from the Academy that he deserves. Right? What he does with Gollum, I don't think many other actors, if any, could have pulled off. That there's there's two scenes in this film and then one in Return of the King that are the most noteworthy where he where the two sides of Gollum's person well, sorry, Gollum and Smeagol, right? Which are the two sides of that of his personality, are having a full conversation, right? Shot as one continuous conversation that Circus was just having with himself, right? They didn't, like, take a break and film all the Gollum stuff and then take a break and film all the Smeagol stuff. He just kept going, kept going. It's not like a one-take, but he just kept going, right? Uh, like, which is, you know, oh, which is, you know, kind of method acting because it's what Gollum was doing. He was just 
talking with Smeagol, right? And it's so well done how manipulative and evil the Gollum side is. Like, he completely changes his face facial structure when he is Gollum to that big, like, sharp, jagged, evil smirk and those piercing, deceptive eyes. And then, you know, as he switches back to the Smeagol side, it's all like an innocent little puppy with the big eyes and the, you know, I'm not doing this face, like all, you know, innocent and sometimes pathetic. Like, it is such an achievement that that one scene in particular, about halfway through the film, when he's sitting in the forest, Frodo and Sam are asleep, and the camera just switches from the left-hand side to the right-hand side, back and forth, back and forth. And Gollum's just turning his head, being Gollum, and then being Smeagol, talking to himself. It's so simple, but done so perfectly. It is a credit. It's, it's all, like, apart from... Apart from maybe the the score and the production, it's it's probably the high point of the film in terms of achievement. Like, it was so important that it was done perfectly and I fully, in every sense of the word, mean that Gollum was done perfectly. Seriously. Never has a villain as complicated as the title villain is for the creature Gollum. It's, you know, it's not so black and white for him, but never has a villain been so well crafted in, in first on-screen realisation. Like, villains like Darth Vader are given more depth in the future, in later films, but in this just one film, and now I know he's in Return of the King, but Two Towers is Gollum's film. It really is. <clears throat> um, yeah, it's, and he's so important, like I said, for where we see Frodo and Sam end up. Like when they, when they, when Fellowship ends, they're, you know, still best buds. Best buds, and Sam's come along to help Frodo in any way he can. He's like, I'm not letting you go by yourself. But then, you know, you start to see them fracture a little bit, you know, even to a point where when they're in Osgiliath and Frodo snaps a little bit and he pulls his thought, his sword, his sword, his sword to Sam's throat. And even in that moment, Sam, like, still just sees him as Frodo. He, he like, Frodo is just good just because... And Gollum is evil just because to Sam, right? He's he's got a lot of learning to do, and that does come in Return of the King. But it's it's the start of it, and that scene in particular, after Frodo sort of snaps out of it and he steps back and drops the sword, and Sam does his big long speech about where they're at and why it's so unfair and why they shouldn't be there, and you know about fighting for the good in the world. There's some really good stuff. Like, Gollum isn't even... He's not He's not being his manipulative self. He's not, you know... He's just... Sit, like, he is, like, sort of handcuffed or whatever. Um, his hands are chained up. 
so you can't really do a lot, but he does just sit there. While Sam talks, he gives this big speech. And when Sam's talking about, you know, Frodo says, you know, what are we fighting for or whatever he says, you know. You know, it sounds like of the hope that there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, some good that is worth fighting for. And as he's saying that, like Gollum sort of perks up and listens. And then as, as Sam says that there is some good worth fighting for, Gollum just sort of looks down, he drops his head, and you can see him realising that he's so far gone that he will never be that good in the world that Sam is talking about. And I keep saying Gollum, but that that is Smeagol there. This Gollum side doesn't give a fuck about any of that. That's the Smeagol who hasn't been Smeagol for 500 years going, gee, I kind of, you know, not kind of, I very much lament where my life has gone. And, you know, because he would see himself in Frodo and Sam, <clears throat> Frodo and Sam having been a hobbit or a hobbit-like creature a long time ago. I, I cannot give enough praise to what they did with Gollum. The Peter Jackson and Andy Serkis, I, I applaud you, seriously. All right, let's, let's move on from Gollum. The second thing that you cannot ignore when you're talking about Two Towers is Helm's Deep, obviously, all right? It's possibly, well, not even possibly, I, I feel comfortable saying that it is the best crafted battle sequence in film history. Battles are all about the contrast between the calm and the storm, right? Helm's Deep starts off with silence, as in, you know, there's no score. There's a little bit of foley art going on, but there's no score, right? And then that silence is broken with the crash of thunder and then the rain, the pitter-patter rain, you know, and then the, you know, the distant marching of the Urukai. It's, it's, the build-up is just as good as the 40 minutes of battle itself, right? Yeah, it's a 40-minute sequence, that's right. That, by the way, they spent four months shooting. Four months just on Helm's Deep tells you the effort that went in, and it shows, right? The lighting. A, a good rule in cinema when you're lighting something, especially when you're lighting something that's got a bit of special effects involved or, you know, is even got a bit of a fantasy aspect that you still want to look good is one light source, right? It's a good rule. And Helm's Deep, a large part of the battle, takes place at night, right? And, you know, the light of the moon is the obvious thing to use, but what the late great cinematographer Andrew Lesney did was he gave the moon this very, the moonlight, this very blue hue, and it makes everything so easy to see, and it's so easy to distinguish everything from everything else. Like, you can see the castle itself 
so clearly. You can see all the little people on the walls very clearly. You can see all the ladders and the Urukai climbing the ladders very clearly. You can see the causeway very clearly. You can see the Urukai walking up the causeway very clearly. It was so important that it was clear to see everything that was happening in the battle. Like, I, I believe that Andrew Lesney won an Academy Award for this. If not this one, um, Return of the King. I can't quite remember, but it's absolutely deserved. He, he the cinematography is, is half of Helm's Deep. The other half is obviously the story. But how it looks is so important and so bloody well done. Oh, it, Helm's Deep, in terms of the story, it's really its own tight little narrative within the narrative of the film, which is within the narrative of the entire trilogy. Right? You could take the Helm's Deep battle and make it into its own little short film. Right? Because it has an inciting incident. Right? That old bloke letting that first arrow fly accidentally, and then we're off, right? It has obstacles, like the gunpowder suicide bombing, right? Or, you know, the Urukai breaching the door with that big battering ram, right? That kind of thing. It has little triumphs, like the awesomeness that is Legolas surfing down those stairs on the shield, Right? Or, you know, Gimli and Aragorn fighting all those Urukai on the causeway after Gimli tells him to toss me. Um, and then it has the ultimate triumph of Gandalf returning with Aemir and all his riders winning the battle right when you think they've lost, right? There's only like seven or eight guys left. They ride out on horseback and you think they're fucked, right? The numbers are just going to get them. Right, then Gandalf shows up. Well, first light of the fifth day, as he said. Right, it's it's such a perfect, cohesive little story within an entire film. Very, very well done. That's what battles should be. Right, and it even has the levity in there as well with the little competition between Gimli and Legolas about who can get the most kills. It's it's brilliant. By the way, we've got to touch on the fact that. In the extended edition, we learned that Legolas drops a 17 to 2 lead. Come on, man. You gotta up. Like, that's not good enough from old mate Legolas. Like, we, we know he's better than that. Just bloody must have had to, gone and had to lie down while we let Gimli catch up. Seriously, that is ridiculous. Um, Elm Steep is perfect. It's perfect. It, it's what epic battles can be. At their best. You know, they can be straight up enormous and grand in scale, but if they don't have their own story and their own purpose in a story, they aren't reaching their potential at all. And Helmsteep really does. Even even Theoden, he has his own little arc throughout the battle, you know. At first, he's really arrogant. Like... Is this all you can conjure, Saruman, right? Before the fucking wall blows up, right? And then by the time, you know, they're down to just a few guys, he's all, woe is me. 
you know, even beforehand, he's a bit well with me. Where was the horn that was blowing? But, you know, when he's talking about what men can do against such reckless hate, he's really at his lowest point. And then Aragorn perks him up. Let's ride out and meet them. For death and glory. For Rohan. Oh, I, I do love that bit a lot. A lot. Really, really love that bit. Doesn't really make sense how they actually survive for even a couple of minutes on horseback amongst all those Urukai. You think the Urukai would just cut down the horses and just kill them easily, but somehow they survive. But it's still awesome when Aragorn gives that little pep talk and then Theoden buys into it. Anyway, but that's Theoden's little arc throughout the battle. He's like, oh, woe is me. Oh, we're doing quite good. This castle's pretty secure. Oh, we're not doing so good. Oh, we're really not doing so good. Oh, fuck it. Let's just go and do our best. And if we're going to die, let's die fucking kicking ass, right? It's really, really good. Um, okay. Uh, at the start, I mentioned this was the funniest of the three films. And it is so many amazing lines, so many amazing memes. Um, here are just some of the quotes from this film that I recite regularly, even just to myself. What about them? They're fresh. I'm wasted on cross-country, weak dwarves and natural sprinters. Keep breathing. That's the key. Breathe. Whoa. Shall I describe it to you? Or would you like me to find you a box? Sounds like orc mischief to me. We can't eat hobbit food. We must starve. That's a golem line from the extended edition. For those who don't know, very funny. I have not passed through fire and death to bandy crooked words with a witless worm. What's taters, precious? Potatoes? I think the potatoes is just about the most quoted line from all of Lord of the Rings. It's a, it's more of a meme than one cannot just walk into Mordor. It's more known than you shall not pass. It is legendary potatoes. Anytime I'm eating chips or anything that's come from a potato, potatoes. Very, very funny movie, this one. And I talked before about the, the levity between Gimli and Legolas. What I like about this film as well, now that the Fellowship's split up, we get to see the relationships between the little groups, the characters. I've talked a lot about the Frodo, Sam, Gollum stuff, so I'll leave that for now. Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli, their little trio. I could watch an entire trilogy of films just about those three. Trekking across the countryside. Excuse me. Trekking across the countryside. Getting into mischief, like Aragorn, you know, being all serious. Not a whole lot of fun. But then Gimli and Legolas just dicking around. Um, yeah, they both provide a lot of laughs. I love their friendship. Um, apparently, those three actors, the whole sequence where they're chasing the Urukai across the countryside is amazing. But apparently, the three the three actors were all grievously injured throughout that whole sequence. They were just running like absolutely fucked. Um, everyone knows about the Aragorn or um, Viggo Morgensen broken toe from when he kicks that 
Urukai helmet when he when they think that Pippi and Pippi, Pippin and Mary are dead. He, he he does break his toe, and that went in the film when he kicks that, and that scream is real. And I think they shot that before all the running sequences because apparently Viggo Mortensen was running on that broken toe because he's a fucking badass, badass. Like if you don't know how amazing Vigo is he, he wasn't cast until they'd already been shooting for a couple of months right he had never held a sword before and all the sword fighting in the films you know with Aragorn is done by him so he learned very quickly he's fluent I don't know about fluent but he very well speaks Elvish as well as a bunch as well as like six or eight real world languages like he is a remarkable actor and he got fucking into it and you know with hindsight no one else could have done Aragon as well as Vigo did it's a very very impressive performance same with Gimli in Legolas like like Orlando this is prime Orlando Bloom this is when he's doing pirates it's right before he does like Troy and all that stuff prime Orlando Bloom and John Reese davies is it's like he was born to play Gimli. Like, he's a famous actor for lots of other stuff, but it's like he was born to play Gimli just because of the comic relief that Gimli has to provide. It's it's just perfect from John Rhys-Davies. Um, the return of Gandalf and how he is as Gandalf the White, I really, really like. I like when they're, you know, they're in Fangorn looking for Merry and Pippin. You know, they're wandering, you know, they're... They've said something. We're being watched or, you know, whatever. They think it's Saruman, right? The white wizard. You know, and then they attack and Gandalf just swats them all away easily. Just shows how more powerful he is now that he's leveled up. And when he starts to speak, a very clever thing that they did was they had Ian McKellen and Christopher Lee read the lines and they... Like, the reason it sounds a little strange is because it's both of them speaking the lines. Like, they've played them both over the top of each other. So that you actually can't tell for sure whether it's Gandalf you're about to see or whether it's Saruman you're about to see, which is really cool. I like how... So, I believe with the wizards that there can only be one such and such, the, the white, right? I believe that's how it works. And that's why Gandalf, you know, is reincarnated as Gandalf the White. And as he becomes more powerful, you can see Saruman growing weaker. And Saruman actually becomes more grey. His beard starts to become grey. His white cloak is not as crisp and white as it was in Fellowship. It's very well done. And this obviously leads into how Gandalf is able to free Theoden of... The spell that he's under the manipulation of Grima Wormtongue and of Saruman. And it's 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 where Gandalf pretty much finally defeats Saruman. Like after that, like Saruman might is yet to launch the Urukai army at Helm's Deep, but in terms of his own powers, he's done after that, after Gandalf frees Theoden. Um so yeah, big fan of Gandalf in this film. I I wish there was a little bit more of him because obviously he disappears 
to go and find Aemir and the Riders for five days. Right, so I wish there was more of him. That's all I'll say about that. Um, I really like the idea of the the very perilous journey from... Oh, what's the name of this? What's the name of the Rohan city? Edoras. The, the walk of the entire city, all the people from Edoras to Helm's Deep and the, the battle with the Warg Riders is really, really cool. <clears throat> I, I love the entire idea of the Kingdom of Rohan. I love that they get their own movie, essentially. Gondor kind of gets their own movie in Return of the King, but this, this movie is all about Rohan. I love the like the horse sort of culture. Like they they're the they're the wild horse riders. You know they're a little bit unruly. Like when when they when Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas enter in to Rohan, you know, Rohan, home of the horse lords. Some evil gives speed to these creatures. Like it's such an interesting. Like you think, oh, it's just a bunch of men, right? They're just some dudes. They're just people. But no, some evil gives speed to these creatures. There's a little bit more going on in Rohan than where, you know, than people realize, which is cool. It's really cool. Um, I love the look. I, I love the very chrome, concrete, white, silver, crisp look of Gondor. But then the more sort of bronzy, wooden look of Rohan, I love the contrast, and I love how they both look, especially Rohan, I really love it. It's like they're a little bit, like, less well-off, but equally capable, like, I don't know, a little bit more countryside-y, even the city, like, Edoras compared to Minas Tirith, very, very, very different, like, there's no concrete in Edoras, like, whereas everything is made of concrete in Minas Tirith, you know what I mean? Um... Yeah, yeah, I like it a lot. Um, the one part of this film that I'm not wild about, and it's the reason mainly that it's my least favourite of the three, is the stuff with Merry and Pippin and Treebeard. I like Treebeard a lot as a character, but I just find the sequences with him... A little boring, which is kind of ironic because that's the whole idea around them. They're like super old and super slow to do everything. Like they're Entmoot. They talk for hours. And then he finally comes over to Merry and Pippin. Like, we have agreed. You are not orcs. Like that's all you've figured out in the hours you've been talking. Like, it's kind of funny, but I just don't find them... Like, I don't care enough about his character or the rest of the ends. Like, I understand how important he is, and I appreciate that. It's very, very important that... it's it, He's actually more important for Merry and Pippin's development than he is for anything else. Because, you know, Merry and Pippin, and, you know, they're just a lot, sort of along for the ride. They've been kidnapped by the Urukai. And then they escape, and then off screen, we know that they touch base with Gandalf, and everything's all good. And then when they're hanging out with Treebeard, you know, and they're waiting for Treebeard to decide whether they're going to help with the war. It's really Merry who pipes up. He's like, You're part of this world, aren't you? You know, our friends are out there, they need our help. 
all, all that stuff. And Pippin's still sort of a kid in this situation, but he, him and Mary are very much joined at the hip. So whatever Mary thinks and does, Pippin thinks and does, right? So the whole sequence with them and Tribute is about the two of them rising to the occasion. And Pippin being the one who tricks Treebeard into walking south and seeing the the leveled forest close to Isengard, uh, close to Isengard, and that being the trigger that sends him crazy and unleashes the army of Ents on on Isengard is is very cool and very important, I think. And I do very much like the little, like the fact that you've got Helm's Deep happening on one side. Then you've got the Ent War against Isengard happening on the other side, which is very cool. They break the dam, let all the water out. They're kicking orcs all over the place, throwing rocks at Saruman's Tower, all that. Very cool. And then also while all this is happening, there's the battle at Osgiliath that Frodo, Sam and Gollum are in the middle of. Like, there is so much going on at once. It is an enormously complicated third act that this film, but they pull it off. Like, they pull off everything in these films. Um, once again, Howard Shaw just adds more brilliance to the body of work that he put together for these films. Something I didn't touch on in yesterday's fellowship review is how he blends all his different scores or all his different themes, I should say, how he builds them and mixes them together. He does it really, really well in all three films. Two Towers has some awesome, awesome music. It's really important for all the different battles going on, especially, and for the stuff with Gollum, especially the scene at the end, that long one take, where we once again get the Smeagol versus Gollum conversations. Um, but in Fellowship, something I just want to go back to is how he constructs the Fellowship theme as the film goes along. When it's just Frodo and Sam, it's just a couple of instruments. You add Merry Pippet, and then Aragon starts to build the orchestra a little bit more. You can hear it in the music. And when they're in Rivendell, the fellowship is formed and at full strength. It's the entire orchestra all together. That's why it sounds the most grand. Um, and then as Gandalf goes, as Boromir goes, drops off again, and you end up with just a couple of instruments again at the end once Frodo and Sam are gone, Merry and Pippin taken. Like, it's really brilliantly done. It's not part of this film, but I just wanted to, touch on it again because like I'm not a music head so I don't like understand it well enough to really go into a deep dive about why it's so brilliant but I do understand that it's brilliant um so yeah and, and in two towers it's brilliantly done again absolutely um that will do for this review I think I think I've done well to keep my voice intact I really really hope that I'm doing a little bit better, better tomorrow night. We will see how I go. Um, thanks so much for listening, guys. This is episode 99. Tomorrow night is the 100th episode of the podcast. That is amazing. 
That is amazing. Um, remember to subscribe and follow and like my stuff and leave reviews. Tell your friends. Word of mouth is great. Tell your friends. And I'll see you guys next time, which will be tomorrow night, hopefully. Bye.